Would you turn in your Bible with me to Genesis? We're going to be today in chapters 1 and 2, then we're going to pop over to Psalm 8, as well as Colossians 1, 15. As we transition this morning from communion into God's Word, I think it's, <clears throat> it's a helpful reminder to us that when we join together in communion, we are joining together in the work of the redemption that Christ brought for His people, bringing them out of darkness and into light, not only saving us from our sins, but restoring us in a right relationship with God as our Father. There are times that I think that we get one part of that equation right. We, we can kind of teeter back and forth between the two things, either that we're a sinner or we're a worm or that we're, we're a child of God and, and, and that we can just do anything. And, and yet God holds us in that balance where he says, through Christ, I have not only forgiven you of your sins, but I have, there has been a restoration to the right relationship of God as Father. Last week, we learned that God is our powerful creator, forming, filling, finishing his good work, creating us for communion with him or close relationship to him. That's what we celebrate in this act of communion. So through Christ, communion looks back to the garden without uh, giving us a sense that we have to go back to the garden ourselves. Uh, through, through Christ, we celebrate his work on the cross without actually placing him back on the cross. I love how we were worshiping earlier today. We were singing about the empty tomb. That there is an empty tomb that is a, a, it is a point of demarcation in our redemption. Not only did Christ die for our sins, but he is risen and he is reigning today. So sin does not have a rule or a reign in our lives, and yet it remains in our lives and we have this act of communion to be reminded of that close relationship and that close fellowship that we now have with Jesus. And as I think about the, those who would be reading the book of Genesis, those who are coming out of exile, those who are coming out of slavery, they were in a type of slavery that was for gain. They were, they were a commodity to the pharaohs. They were a commodity to those who were ruling over them. They'd been stripped of any any sense of individuality. They, they were just a group of people. They'd been kind of lumped in together. And isn't that the way that some of us can walk in today? Well, we're not quite sure where it is that we stand. Well, we're not quite sure why it is that we've been made. We're not quite sure because of the things of the world that we may have given ourselves over to or that may have been done to us in this fallen world. We're not quite sure where it is that we stand I think that the people that would be receiving from Moses in the book of Genesis would be wrestling with questions like, what does it even mean to be a human being? I mean, here they've been gifted all of these different things that, that separate them from the rest of creation, as we saw last week, where even in Moses' account, most of the creation narrative is given to this crowning achievement in making man and woman. So they've been gifted with these things like self-awareness that are, that are universally true. There's a creativity uh, that is universally true for them. There's compassion. There's this reasoning that is much more complex than just the base needs of life. There are emotions. And more than that, they're called image bearers. So how do they wrestle around with that question? How do they, they grasp a sense after hundreds of years in bondage and slavery? Generations being commoditized. And beaten down. 
What does it mean to be created as an image bearer of God? What does it mean to be human? Now, the Bible describes human beings as being unique, different from anything else that God had created. But how is it that we're different? And if we're different, what does that mean for our lives? What does it mean for the way that we are called to live? See, the Holy Spirit inspired Moses to speak to the people that he was leading out of Egypt. It's important for us to understand today so that we too, in coming from darkness into light, would not be ones that are tempted to live for our own glory. That we would be living for the glory of God, the one who both formed and continues to fill us today. He continues to sustain us by giving us gifts like this sacrament of communion that we just celebrated. Earlier this week, I looked at our affirmations of faith, which can be found online. And I wanted to draw our attention to two sections there that are briefly summarized for us today. That of creation. In our affirmations of faith, we say this, that we believe that the universe has its beginning and end in God's will. The universe is in no sense independent of him, and creation does not reflect a prior deficiency. But its formation and maintenance represent a continuing exertion of his creative power and ability. Both Adam and Eve were created equally in the image of God without sin. He endued them with knowledge, righteousness, and holiness, having God's natural law of conscience written on their hearts and the power to fulfill that law. And then the condition of men and women. God made man in his own image, male and female. He created them as the crown of creation, that man might have communion with him, that is with God. As we'll see next week, that tempted by Satan, man rebelled against God and thereby incurred not only physical death, but also spiritual death, which is separation from God himself. Now, a worldly response to to these truths of either lumping groups of people together or stripping away their individual being or radical individualism that says there's no authority over us is not a right response. So how is it that Scripture gives us a right response to being image bearers by, and, and seeing that through the lens of one who has come to redeem us? Well, we begin here in Genesis. As I said last week, Genesis is about the origins of the grace of God for us as his people. So we'll see next week in the fall in Genesis 3 what it is that happens when, the, when sin enters the world and why it is that we need this great Savior. But today we're going to focus on this aspect of truth, that we were created as God's image bearers, that we've been given a unique purpose and we've been given a unique relationship with God as our Creator. We've been given a unique purpose and a unique relationship. So Moses' radical message of the grace of God expressed through the purpose for humanity is beginning to take center stage now in the book of Genesis. As he concludes Genesis 1, as he starts in Genesis 2, we see kind of two sections coming together centered around this thought that we bear God's image in our role over creation. Humanity bears God's image in our role over creation. Now, it may be said here, you may have heard the term before in theological circles, that there is a cultural mandate for, for human beings, that we are given a role uh, in creation. Uh, yesterday, my family and I spent the majority of the day in the yard, and it was awful. It was the stuff of 
I was sharing this with the band earlier. It's the stuff that will make parenting, marriage, uh, other types of, of training context, illustrations just poured forth. And not always the good ones, right? Where like we're wrestling with the ground. And in Genesis chapter 2, that's the picture that is, is painted for us. That there is an earth that needs someone to tend to it and care for it. And there are these vines in my yard that I'm not sure if they were a part of the original creation or the result of the fall. I think I called them both yesterday. I mean, that's how it felt. Perhaps you've had a yard day like that, or you've just given up on a yard day like that. I'm not sure. There were times yesterday where I was like, is this worth it? As I'm wrestling even through today's passage. We've been given a mandate to care for the creation that God has entrusted to us. Let's think about what this cultural mandate is, that human beings are called to develop the latent potential of the world through the growth of the human race, the development of culture, and care for the world that God made. Let me just read that to you one more time. This is based in Genesis 1.28 and Genesis 2.15, which we're going to look at in just a moment. Human beings are called to develop the latent potential of the world through the growth of the human race, the development of culture, and care for the world that God made. Let's look at Genesis 1.26 through 28 together. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps the earth. Verse 27, you'll notice that that's kind of indented there. We're going to see why in just a moment. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. Verse 28, and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. On Monday, my wife and I went to Animal Kingdom. And we had a great time there. It was kind of an extension of our anniversary celebration just to have the day together there. And I didn't find any of my kind behind bars that day. Well, we enjoyed looking at the animals. We enjoyed the distance that was between us and them as they described like 6,000-pound rhinos and crazy stuff like that. And, and did you know that giraffes have the highest blood pressure of any mammal? Anyway, um, it's so they can get the blood up their neck. That's crazy, right? Like who but God would create that kind of detail? But I didn't find my kind doing anything other than sitting and sweating next to me. So there's something unique about creation. And I do appreciate this about Animal Kingdom, and, and this is not a plug for Disney or not a zoo or whatever it is that they're doing these days with their marketing campaign, but I do appreciate this. There is a, a conservation that they're trying to bring to the earth. And I think that that's a good thing. I think that that's a part of giving a, giving a dominion over the earth. That we're not just locking animals in cages, but we are actually trying to conserve a part of God's creation. A part of God's good creation. Even in those worldly ways. But it was interesting being there, having these passages kind of rattling around in the back of my brain. Seeing God's creation on display like that. And it's amazing, isn't it? 
It's amazing when you hear the roar of a lion. It's amazing when you see the African elephant. It's amazing when you see all of these things that God has created, and then you think about what role He's given us, and and it can feel overwhelming at times. And yet God hasn't put all of that in place, spun it into being, and then just abandoned us. He equips us through His Word to live rightly for Him. He starts by revealing who He is. We saw that last week, that He is the God who forms and fills and finishes, and that we can look to Christ who has finished His work perfectly. Then He tells us about ourselves this week, that we are made in the image of God. That's a crazy thought to keep in your mind, made in the image of God. It's one of those things that almost feels uncomfortable to say about yourself. Almost as if we're bragging like we did anything about it. Ray Ortland in his book called The Death of Porn. I'm only about a quarter of the way into it so far. I highly recommend it. He says this. The Hebrew word translated image in Genesis 1.27. By the way, I let the guys know no notes for today just because of some of the special elements of our service. All of my notes will be online uh, probably about Tuesday morning. So today, just listen. Be encouraged. Be filled with a fresh vision for who you are in Christ. The Hebrew word translated image in Genesis 127 is elsewhere in the Bible to mean statue. You aren't a literal statue of God. He has no form, no edges, no limits. But you do image God as you think like Him and love like Him and stand up for Him. You can think of it this way, just as powerful earthly kings to indicate their claim to dominion erect an image of themselves in the province of their empire where they do not personally appear. So man is placed upon the earth in God's image as God's sovereign emblem. As God's sovereign emblem. So what is it that we do with language that says that we are to fill the earth, that we are to subdue the earth, that we are to have dominion over the earth? That is not dominance. That is not lording over. That is actually wisely consuming and cultivating the world's resources. That's a way that we can exercise dominion in the world, that we can express care for the world and that we can cultivate the world that God has made for us as he desires, that we can go to work and do so with excellence, being diligent in our labors, spinning a yard, wrestling with vines. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm personalizing that. That's my bad. Being diligent in our labors, showing respect for those who employ us, showing respect for our coworkers. That's a way, if you are an employer, that you show respect for your employees. That's a way of serving and honoring the Lord, that we can be creative. That's another way that we are image bearers, that we create art, that we are involved in music, poetry, visual arts, novels, film, all of these things and more. That is an exercise of dominion over the earth. When we celebrate creativity, when we celebrate beauty and the goodness of God in both overt and in subtle ways. We celebrate His creation. It also means things like multiplying biologically, that we would have children, that we would support, protect, care for others in other generations. That is an exercise of our dominion as we bring new life into the world and we care for life that already exists. That's how we extend the culture as image bearers of God. That we also multiply spiritually. You know, I think at times we... We think about multiplication simply in biological terms. 
But what about multiplying spiritually? What about sharing our faith? What about sharing the gospel and the good news, making disciples as Jesus commissions us to do? That's a unique way that we also fulfill this cultural mandate. So we bear God's image in our roles over creation. We also bear God's image through our relationships with one another. Humanity represents the pinnacle of creation. We talked about this last week. It's kind of the apex of chapter 1. Men and women are created to, in God's image, so life itself is sacred. Life itself is sacred. We resemble God in character. We resemble God in speech. We are called to resemble God in our actions so that others can have fellowship, so that others can worship Him, and that we can worship with one another. We have a role to play in our relationships as well. Our calling, in a nutshell, then, this is universally true, our calling as individuals who are created as image bearers, our calling is to be fruitful so that God's glory and God's goodness would multiply through us. Is that said of your life, that God's goodness is multiplied through you? I think about this as a parent. I think about this as a husband. I think about this as a friend. And I'm reminded of all of the ways that I fall short in those things. I'm so glad I have a perfect image bearer to look to. I'm so glad I have a perfect image bearer to look to. But it reminds me in those new seasons of life, it reminds me in the new roles and responsibilities of things that are always true about who I am as an image bearer. It's always true that I am called to multiply God's goodness in creation through me. Is that said of you as well? We are to be agents of God's dominion on earth, that we are a part of the ones that are bringing blessing of fruitfulness, enable, enabling others to, to bring other image bearers before the Lord as well. That's a part of how we multiply in this cultural mandate. I love what Genesis 2, 18 through 23 says. Let's look at that together. Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 through 23. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord had formed. Just, I'm going to slow down here because I don't want us to miss something. Out of the ground that he had formed. You know, it's often said that, that creation is ex nihilo, that God breathes out of nothing. We see that in, in Hebrews, that God breathes creation out of nothing. Adam was not created out of nothing. Adam was created out of the matter that God himself created. And then he is formed in a unique way. Now, out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field, every bird of the heavens, and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave, gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. While he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up in its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. God created, we're told in Genesis 1, 28, that God created humans as both male and female. All of scripture affirms this. 
he also created men and women as equals. They are created as equals. The, the, the concept of suitability, uh, never call your wife a suitable helpmate. That's not an encouragement. There's no Hallmark anniversary card that is the suitable helpmate section. That's not a word that we typically use a lot, that she is a suitable helper. It almost sounds condescending, doesn't it? I think Scripture actually says something different about that phrase as we understand it rightly from the original language. This idea of suitability or correspondence, as it's called in different ways, it actually emphasizes the equality of men and women. And this is not me trying to give in to some liberal agenda or some conservative agenda. Actually, I just want to be driven by God's Word and what it actually says. And what it says is that men and women were created equally in God's image with different roles that they were created for as they represent Him here on the earth. See, it's important for us to understand what it means to be a helper as it says in verse 18, the Hebrew word translated helper or ezer as suggests providing aid, support, even protection. Rather than seeing the word as helper as something that implying that there is some form of subservience, the Bible wants us to understand that there is a special dignity that conveys. There is a special dignity that conveys. Why would I say that there's a special dignity to that because it connects to God himself because God in scripture is referred to as our helper using the same word there's a power and there's a strength to it and so God created male and female as equal but they are distinct from one another so correspondence this idea that we are created equal means that we are same in our being but we are distinct from one another as well we share essential qualities, but male and female are not the same. By God's design, this distinction allows us to flourish as God's image bearers, not be something that we use and weaponize toward one another. Notably, the, the command to the first married couple is to fill the earth. And this is where I say I don't want us just to have a narrow vision of what it means to populate the earth as it relates to biologically or sexually I want us to understand that spiritually as well. I want us to understand that as a part of our mission here in the earth. But God also created men and women in the context of marriage for intimacy with one another. He created them for intimacy with one another. When Adam names her woman, what he's anticipating there is the deepest form of intimacy. He's embedding his own name in hers. That's not something that is to dominate or lord over another individual. It's to indicate the deepest type of intimacy, both knowing and being known fully. I'm grateful for the ways that, that Stephanie knows me fully. And I'm not talking about biologically or sexually. I'm grateful for the ways that she can read me as I read a room. I'm grateful for the ways that she knows things about my response or, at times, reactions. I'm grateful that she's been created to know me fully and that I can also fully know her. But that is to be done within the context of a marital relationship, as we see the rest of Scripture affirm. That's to be done in a marital relationship. 
See, the Bible is also filled with examples of intimacy that are not sexual in nature at all. We find this uh, in friendships. We find this in family. We find this in the church. But we realize what it's actually telling us is that as human beings, as image bearers, we have been created for forms of intimacy with one another in a variety of forms. But I want us to just note that in verse 29, or excuse me, in verse 23, we see a similar form in our scriptures that we saw in verse 27 of Genesis 1. And what does that denote? Perhaps your app or your Bible may not make it quite as clear, but actually those two phrases in Scripture are poetry. They're poetry. Now this is a book of origins. It's about the origins of the grace of God. It leads into a whole set of books about the law of God. I don't know a lot of law books that include poetry. I haven't read a ton of them, but they don't usually start with poetry. Why would poetry be present here? Poetry is most often used in what? Relationship. It's most often used in those intimate emotions that sometimes we ourselves don't even know how to put word to. It gives words and prose to something that is trying to be celebrated, not to be dominated, not to put someone in subservience to one another. There is a tenderness there. We are formed by the Creator, putting His dust in putting his hands into the dust that he had created, forming us into his image. And then he draws us close. The, the imagery that is used here in the original Hebrew is that he draws Adam's face close to his own and breathes into him. This last week I saw a, uh, a quick video clip of a piece of pottery. It was a piece of pottery that was going to be a jar, and it kind of had this wider bottom to it, and then it came up to this top piece. But in the midst of being made, the pottery had kind of fallen flat, and, and the, the flute, I think is what you call it there, the, the part that was going to be used for pouring, had actually kind of collapsed into itself. And so this potter did this, did this trick where he kind of drew it close to himself, and he spun the table a bit faster, and then he actually blew into it. And what happened in that moment is that pottery raised back into the form that it was supposed to have. That's the image that Moses uses here. That the creator takes this formed clay in his hands and he draws it near to his face. And he breathes life into it. I hope that's encouraging to you today. That the creator of the world would take the time to draw you near and breathe life into you. That he would reach his hands into the dust, get them dirty with his own creation to make you and me as image bearers. Not so that we point to ourselves, but so that we point our lives to the life giver. So that our lives are representative of the one who breathed life into us. I think that that, that renews the significance to the call for us through the power of the Holy Spirit to be filled. Are you feeling a bit lifeless? Does life feel stale or stagnant? Let the Spirit continue to breathe life into you. To be formed and shaped and molded into the image of His Son. The one who gave His life for you. And be filled with all the fullness of God. There's nothing else in creation that God treats this tenderly or intimately. 
There's nothing else in creation that is brought into this type of shape by his own hands, that is, that is brought it before his faith, his face breathing into them, being animated for his purposes. There is an abiding communion that we have with him. So what is our response? Psalm 8 points us to that. Turn with me to Psalm chapter 8. Psalm 8 tells us that we bear God's image as a crown of glory and honor. You may think that that seems like awfully encouraging words. Well, they're biblical. They should be encouraging to you. They may, I hope that they speak against the lies that the world may be telling you or your own mind may be filling you with or that the enemy may be using as a weapon against you today. We bear God's image as a crown of glory and honor. See, there's a greatness to creation. There is a huge aspect of creation. I often use the illustration, I need to get to the beach to feel this. I I get that sense of who God is with the waves crashing against the shore that are, are so much stronger than I am. That most often ministers to me in moments of weakness. When I feel weak that I encounter not just something more powerful than I am, but praise God, someone who is more powerful than I am that calls me into relationship with him. I remember the night that we got to the Grand Canyon, just before I read from Psalm 8. The trip had not gone as we had planned. Rather than being about 6 o'clock, it was 3 a.m., that kind of not going as we had planned. It was 3 a.m. We got out of the RV having just found our spot, and I looked up, and I'll never forget seeing stars I'd never been able to see from earth before, just with my eye. In the darkness of that moment, just a couple of hours before sunrise, as as night falls to its darkest point, even the colors of darkness in the sky that were so vivid and beautiful in that moment, I saw bands of stars I've never been able to see before. And I remember looking at Stephanie. I said, this moment is why this trip is worth it. This moment is why this trip is worth it. And what does David say of that? Psalm 8.3, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. Crowned in creation with glory and honor. Given dominion over the works of your hands. That we would steward that. You've put all things under his feet. All sheep and oxen, beasts of the fields, birds of the heaven, fish of the sea. Whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord. How majestic is your name in all the earth. See, Psalm 8 provides a place for us in the redemptive history of mankind. It provides a place for us, not just for David as he's recounting this psalm, not just for the people that are coming out of bondage in Egypt that Moses is writing to, but for you and for me today, we are given a place in redemptive history. 
The author of Hebrews would go on to describe Jesus as the one who for a little while became less than the angels when he added humanity to himself as a being. The Son of God became a human being, a Son of Man, taking on the form of His image bearers, taking on your form and mine. And then through His death and resurrection, He ultimately over creation is crowned with all glory and with all honor. And so now you and I are called in the name of Jesus to be a part of those who are gathering those every knee that will bow and every tongue that will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. We have a place and we have a purpose in redemptive history. Psalm 8 tells us, but more than that, I want us to turn over to Colossians 1.5 as we draw to a close. I want us to see the perfect image bearer. I want us to end our time together today seeing Christ as the perfect image of God. Colossians 1.15-20 says this, He is the image of of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him and all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. That in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile himself all things. Whether on earth or in heaven making peace by the blood of his cross. This is what we celebrated earlier in communion as a church together. And you? What place does that put you in? You who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, become a minister." Being a part of playing our role in creation, understanding this crowned with glory and honor that we have as those who are image bearers, we also become ministers just as Paul is called to be. We become those who, like Christ, as we're told here, he was present at creation and represents its head and his sovereignty and his lordship. He's present over the church. He is the head pastor of his church. He is the head pastor of Metro Life Church as we look to him. Perhaps you've heard me say this recently. I've just been struck by this thought that that God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is transcendent in his glory and his holiness. He is far above all things, but he is imminent in his nearness, in his leading, in his comfort, and is empowering. Who but God would treat us this way? Consider it even more deeply that God, whose throne is established in the heavens that declare His glory, draw near, draws near to us as we humble ourselves and draw near to Him. 
that Christ, whose hands cast the stars into place, also stretched them out to receive the nails for our salvation. That the Holy Spirit, who hovered over the waters of chaos and creation, is everywhere and at all times sustaining that same creation. While he's ministering to us in our needy, weary state, empowering us for who we are in Christ. I love how Ed Welch, in his book, Created to Draw Near, says it. From that Edenic home, we, as humanity, are sent out. As if our home were also a staging site for our priestly mission, there is much to do. The world beyond Eden was untamed, and we are called to claim it for the Lord, to work it or keep it, our mission to imitate Him and represent Him here on the earth. This means that man's purpose was to expand the boundaries of the garden and to raise up new priests to represent the Lord throughout the earth. Later on in Scripture, the mission would be summarized in this way. Be holy, for I am holy. This, too, identifies people as agents of life. Later still, as Welch goes on to say, Jesus replaces it with the greater call of the Great Commission to go and make disciples. Finally, he says, the New Testament writers simplify the Great Commission as a call to reflect and embody the love of Jesus in our very everyday lives. Heaven comes to earth through us. We enjoy fellowship as we participate in God's plans and are further brought into his love. This is life at its fullest. I think there's something about that for us that serves as a wonderful reminder today that we were created as God's image bearers, given both a unique purpose and a unique relationship with the Creator. But if I may share as a closing thought, as it relates to the sanctity and the dignity of life, I love how Shane said it last week as we were talking around some of the implications of this passage today. We as a church don't just affirm that there is a sanctity and dignity of life from the womb to the tomb. We as a church affirm there is a sanctity and dignity of life from the womb to eternity. That changes the way that we view our mission, doesn't it? It changes the way that we view our call to be a part of filling and multiplying the earth as image bearers of the king. So let's consider some implications today. It informs our understanding of empathy, meekness, and compassion as the lens that we see each other through. This understanding of the sanctity and dignity of life means that we can not only stand up for life, but we can actively stand against abortion. But more than just voting for it, we actually can be a church that takes the step of making ourselves or our families approach to taking in children through fostering or adoption, that we support that fully. It means that we have care and concern for the elderly in time of death, treating with dignity and not indignance. 
It means that we understand that the seasons of life are new opportunities for understanding the gospel and God's grace and what he has called us to as image bearers. It means that we have an embrace of individuals and a help for families with special needs. It means that we have concern for individuals, seeing them as individuals, as image bearers that are affected by the immigration crisis that we see on our borders today. It means that we wholeheartedly and give a full-throated rejection of any form of modern-day slavery or human trafficking that commodifies God's created image bearers. It means that we are active in our intervention when we are aware of anyone tempted with suicide or any form of self-harm. It means that we reach out hospitably to the tapestry of races around us, welcoming them to our table as we've been welcomed. It means that we have an abhorrence at men or women being treated as objects through this, uh, or, or subjugation in porn. This informs our local and global mission, not as saviors, but as one who come alongside our fellow image bearers to the glory of God. And this informs our witness that we actually speak and declare these truths to other individuals. Not just for a flourishing life here on earth, but more importantly, for an eternal life that they might come to know. This is where it's important for us as a church to have a biblically informed worldview of humanity as image bearers. That it would inform these types of implications, or maybe better put, convictions as individuals. God is sovereign over his creation, but let's be a church that is active in our roles as image bearers. Ambassadors of a heavenly kingdom whose rule will flourish eternally. God, we pray right now. But we recognize this. If your creation is overwhelming, the call and conviction, the implications of these truths in our lives today as it relates to understanding, concern, seasons of life, racial tensions that we face, issues of fostering and adoption, issue of abortion, standing for life, rejection of modern-day slavery, rejection of the subjugation of people in porn, men and women who are trapped in those lives, men and women who have been commodified. It's overwhelming to think of the implications. But we recognize this. Your spirit will lead and guide how it is that we are called to participate in standing for image bearers, in ministering to other image bearers. No one of us can fully embody all of these aspects of life, and yet they are all a part of your mission here on earth, redeeming your creation. So Spirit, speak to us that we might know how to live for you. That we would be active in reclaiming your creation. 
that our conviction would be more than something that sits in silence in our living rooms and kitchens across Central Florida, but it would animate our mission. It would animate our witness in a way that brings glory to you and that we would trust your work. In those moments where we feel and sense that we are feeble, may we be reminded that we've also been crowned with glory and honor. May we be reminded that the only thing that matters is not the things that we accomplish for your kingdom here on earth, but that we would be known as sons and daughters of God, image bearers of the Most High. And may that comfort wounded and weary souls in Jesus' name. Amen. Church, let's stand and sing together.